You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is episode 82. and This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this episode covers the week of July 24 through 28, 2017. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to do our little housekeeping. If you do like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find us on social media at various places. You can uh, like us on Facebook at Abbeville Institute. You can follow us on Twitter at Abbeville INST. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page, which we do post this podcast along with videos from our conferences. And we will have those uh, from our summer school coming up in the next, uh, I would say, uh, month or two. Uh, we will have the audio files for our summer school coming up uh, fairly shortly with the next week or two. But uh, the videos will be up uh, within the next couple of months. Uh, so do go on out and do those things. Also, if you do like what we do, if you like our mission to explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the Abbeville Institute. You can find all the information for that on our website, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you click on Support. And uh, under a drop-down menu, you see memberships for individuals. You also have memberships uh, options for businesses and also endowments or uh, plan giving. So there's a variety of ways to uh, help the Abbeville Institute continue our mission, help keep this podcast going, help keep the website going, and help us keep high-quality programs available for the general public and for students and academics. So all of those things are available on our website. Also, if you go to our website and you give us an email address, you'll get a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. You can go out there and pick that up just by giving us an email address, and you will get our weekly Daily Dose of Dixie, along with our actually our daily Daily Dose of Dixie, Monday through Friday, and then our weekly uh, newsletter on Saturday or Sunday. I'm trying to do that on Saturdays instead of Sundays, but this week I had some things going on, so it'll be out Sunday this week. Uh, that said, let's talk about the material we have for the week. We had a lot of good stuff, and... Um, Two of the uh, articles actually came from our summer school, so you've got the lecture before you get to hear it. But uh, these, uh, one article from yours truly, the other from Clyde Wilson. But all of these uh, particular pieces have to do with a type of Southern identity. And that was the uh, point of our summer school to uh, discuss Southern identity, what that means for the 21st century, how do we, how do we uh, identify Southerners in the 21st century, particularly if we're dealing with a situation where Southerners are increasingly, or Americans are increasingly less agrarian. Can you still be a Southerner in an age when agrarianism is not as prevalent? Um, and I would say so. Of course, I talked about that in last week's podcast. But uh, we have that particular idea of Southern identity. And um, also, the one of the main misconceptions about uh, Madisonian nullification. So uh, that was a nice uh, little article by Joe Wolverton. So we've got a a couple of pieces by some new uh, authors for our website uh, that never never uh, published with us before, and uh, also some from the old tried and true myself, Clyde Wilson and Boyd Cathy. But uh, let's get started with the material. So the first piece uh, has been viewed uh, thousands of times on social media already. It is Clyde Wilson's lecture from the summer school, You Are Deplorable. And uh, this has to do with the nature of Southern identity in this extremely hostile environment we're facing today in the 21st century. I think that unless you're talking about the 18, the 1850s and 60s and maybe the 70s, uh, and you could prob- maybe perhaps say in the uh, 1950s, 60s, uh, Southerners are going through another phase where they are the absolute villains 
in American history. So uh, if you look at what Northerners said about Southerners in the 1850s, uh, if you, for example, take Charles Sumner's speech, The Crimes Against Kansas speech, where he called Southerners essentially vomit. Uh, and uh, Southerners are described as devils and all kinds of horrible things leading up to the war. And uh, we just saw the passing of uh, the popular historian Thomas Fleming, not to be confused with the Thomas Fleming from, from uh, Rockford Institute or Chronicles, but the popular historian Thomas Fleming, who wrote a number of wonderful books on George Washington, the founding generation. But he, he published a book just a few years before his death, and he was publishing into his 80s, and he, I think he was around 90 years old when he died, 90 or 91. Uh, but this particular book, you know, Disease in the Public Mind, and he, he basically blamed rhetoric, uh, this, uh, these very hostile positions that Northerners and Southerners were taking against each other as causing the war. And we can't discount that in the 21st century. Uh, now, I would, I would suggest that Southerners were reacting more than anything else to uh, Northerners who were calling them things like devils and vomit and all kinds of horrible things. Uh, you, when, you're, when you're classifying people as subhuman, which essentially is what abolitionists and Northerners are doing to the South, you, you don't really have any ground to have a discussion about how to alleviate some of the differences that you have between people because you've already set them off against each other. When you're saying things like it's the slave power or uh, you know these people are subhuman in some way, uh, you don't have any, any ground to have any type of compromise or uh, an open dialogue about problems. And so moving forward, you know, and you look at how Southerners are being portrayed in the 21st century, deplorable. We're deplorable. We're the worst, the most deplorable of all the deplorables, and Clyde says that. If you're Southern, you're the most deplorable of all deplorables. I mean, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton said there's a basket of deplorables supporting Donald Trump, but Southerners are the, are the worst in that bunch. And so if that's the case, if, if the rhetoric is so charged against Southerners, where can you have any common dialogue today? Where, where can it happen? And I think this is where uh, Southerners and, and all Americans should be careful here because uh, what's happening because of this rhetoric? Uh, things are heating up to a point where uh, there's a lot of tension now. And I think that's, if we, if we can use history as any guide for, uh, you know, examples and what could happen in the future, I mean, you have to start looking at this uh, looking at examples from the 1850s and 60s, looking at examples from the 1950s and 60s. And again, here we are uh, 60 years later, uh, looking at examples, 70 years later, looking at examples from uh, 2017 and 16 and 15. I mean, so uh, you've, got, you've got some real charged rhetoric right now, and that does not lend to having a, a dialogue. And I think Clyde's point in this piece is like he, he said he doesn't care. It doesn't matter anymore. Uh, we'll just accept that we're the deplorables, and we'll move on from there. And we'll we'll embrace our own history again, and we'll say we're proud to be Southern, and uh, we're glad that we're being called these things because we no longer have to live in this myth that Northerners have created. Southerners are freed from sticking to the agreement that was made after the war where Southerners will be uh, conciliatory, and they'll say nice things about Abraham Lincoln, and they'll accept that they'll be part of the American system. But what we found is that Northerners never really wanted that. The South was always the whipping boy. The South was always to blame for everything that was wrong. Anytime anything happened, it was the South that was the problem. And in my particular speech, I talk about this and how there's so much room for discussing the new South within this context. 
So, uh, as Clyde says, this is the reality of the 21st century America that uh, we live under. If you don't think so, remember the bailout a few years back in the derivatives crisis. The banks had gambled and lost, but they were too big to fail. Neither party could think of any solution except for the taxpayers to bail the criminals out to the tune of billions of dollars. And this was regarded as an exercise of great statesmanship. He says, if there had been any Southern Jeffersonian democracy left, the crisis would never have happened, nor would the atrocity of the bailout. Um, and so he's saying, you know, th this, is, this is the problem. We are no longer bound by the agreement. And embrace that. Say, fine, I'm deplorable. I love being uh, a, a Jeffersonian Democrat or a Jeffersonian Republican. I love that. I am against big banks, big business. I'm for family, community, land, Christianity. Those are the things I support. Those are the things that make us Southern. And so embrace those things moving forward. In essence, form your own communities. This is where I've said countless times on my own podcast, think locally, act locally. And that's what we're doing now. Form your own communities. Take care of each other. Because the outside pressures are going to be there. In fact, I, I, I would surmise that more monuments are going to be uh, coming down at some point. More Confederate symbols are going to be uh, you know, buried in some way or another. But I love it. You know, Dr. Livingston had a great point about this. He said, you know, if all those symbols ceased to exist, the South would still exist. There were no symbols in 1861. There were no quote-unquote Southern symbols in 1861 when the South seceded. They had to make all that stuff. And if it goes away... It will still be there because that southern tradition still exists. You could take away the green flag in Ireland, for example, but you couldn't take take away what was behind that flag, and eventually that flag came back. So if all these things are done away with, they'll come back. It just might take time. And for a lot of people, you know, this is depressing, and it is. It, it makes you angry. It makes you depressed. It makes you think, what, what America am I living in? I don't even recognize it particularly for people uh, who are, you know, say, in their 60s and older. This is not their America. They, they can't recognize what's happening here. For younger people, uh, people about uh, maybe in their 20s, uh, they don't really remember a time when these things weren't under attack in one way or another. Uh, for people that are, you know, maybe in their 30s and 40s, they remember the attacks, the onslaught taking place beginning in the 90s. I mean, it really ramped up again, the 1990s. And so it quieted down for a little time, but it was always there. It, I mean, it was always there. It was going to be there. And so we've come to live in this world of turmoil and this, this attack. So we recognize that. But I think that um, what's what we need to take out of this is that the Southern identity will continue to exist no matter what. As long as things like the Abbeville Institute exist, as long as people uh, recognize what, that, what makes them Southern and just hold on to those things. What can we conserve? And so uh, that's where I really enjoy this particular piece from, from Clyde, and it's, it's wonderful. Uh, and he concluded the piece with um, a quote from uh, Dr. Robert Peters, and uh, he, he uses this a lot, and I, I think it really is a beautiful summation of, of what the South is. And he said, uh, quote, The South is a garden. It has been worn out by the war, reconstruction, the period of desolation, the depression, and the worst ravages of all, modernity. 
yet a worn-out garden, its contours perceived by keen eyes, the fruitfulness of its past stored in memory, can be over time, a time which will last no longer than those of us who initially set our minds to the task restored to once again produced, for the time appointed unto us, the fruits which nurture the human spirit and which foreshadow the garden of which there will be no end. And so Clyde said that was the nicest thing that he could say about this topic, being Southern in an age of radicalism. How do we cope with this? Well, because the South might be worn out, but it's still there. It's a garden. It can still be cultivated again. And that's what we're trying to do. You are deplorable. Embrace it. Accept what that is. And then say, we're no longer going to agree to the terms of the truce. We are going to say that the South was the basis of America. We're no longer going to say that George Washington or Thomas Jefferson are honorary Yankees. They are Southern, and we will claim it. If you're going to attack them, we will claim them. Andrew Jackson. We will say they are one of us, and we'll take them back. Um, you know, perhaps what we need is like a, uh, a Southern um, resort. You know, it used to be Stone Mountain. Of course, that's been taken over by corporate interests. But maybe a, a, a Southern resort where all these statues are placed somewhere and you can, you can go and, and uh, be Southern uh, and, and enjoy it uh, and have the statues there, the art, the culture of it all. Uh, a little enclave in the, in the uh, vast maelstrom of this attack on the South. And the book review that we ran on Tuesday is a nice example of how the uh, progressive mainstream looks at the South. I mean, the South is always the problem. The South is always the place that uh, is, the, is the significant other that has to be analyzed and addressed and discussed for its racism or anything else, any other bad thing that Americans need to be uh, painted with. The South is, of course, the origin of all of that stuff. And so this particular piece is written by Michael Potts, who is a uh, philosophy professor at uh, Methodist University in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And um, I love his conclusion of this. And he said that the book is, uh, is titled um, The Resilience of Southern Identity, Why the South Still Matters in the Minds of Its People. And it's written by Christopher Cooper and Gibbs Knotts. And it was published by the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, and he concludes the piece with this. He says, quote, The authors make two fundamental errors. First, they assume the South should be more progressive and too easily identify conservatism with racism, a move all too often made by academics on the political left. Second, they fail to seek what is behind the political conservatism of the South. Now, this is important. They, they fail to seek what is behind the political conservatism. Remember, politics is, is an expression of culture. There is a political culture. And so they're not getting the reason why Southerners are naturally conservative. And he says these are the things. He says deep cultural conservatism is underlies that political conservative. And he calls that a combination of traditionalism regarding religion, the family, one's land, courtesy for others, which is manners, and a distrust of entities such as a government and big business who interfere with those traditional values. That is, I love that because he accurately defines Southern conservatism. He says, in this essence, conservatism does seem to be commonly connected with a sense of Southern identity, which is true because Southerners identify with those things. It's cultural. 
which that political culture is born off of a, uh, a, a regional culture. When those attacks come from the outside, if it's coming from big business, if it's coming from big banks, if it's coming from big government, Southerners naturally retrench, and they say, we're going to push back against that. We have tradition, we have custom, these are the things we do around here. As Clyde said in his piece, uh, his grandmother used to tell him, we don't do those things. It's, it's, it is a matter of being and thinking. Of understanding where you come from. And of course, those manners mean something. And so uh, Potts concludes, Thus while Cooper and Knotts offer some useful information about how traditional views of home, family, devotion, land, and courtesy have continued to be associated with Southern identity, because of the negativity of the authors toward traditional Southerners, I would recommend reading this book with caution. In fact, I would recommend not reading it at all, is what I would say. But uh, you can read this review and get what they what they said. But this is uh, to my point also in the summer school when I said, you know, why we should be interested in popular histories. I mean, look, hardly anybody's ever going to read this book. Most academic histories get uh, maybe 100 people to read them, maybe 200 people to read them. But if you can write good popular history, like uh, the late Thomas Fleming, again, not to be confused, confused with the Fleming, Thomas Fleming from uh, Chronicles, but the popular historian Thomas Fleming, if you can write popular histories, you can influence more and more people. Now, if you look at the reviews of that uh, disease in the public mind, you'll see that uh, it was highly criticized by the left because uh, they were saying, well, he dusted off a theory from the 1850s. Well, maybe there's something to be said for that what was being said in the 1850s. Maybe people like uh, Craven and Randall were right. Maybe there was something to be said for uh, this northern aggression. But that is not politically correct today to say. So this is just a really good piece and uh, a nice review of a book worthy of the garbage can. Okay, so... Um, the next piece was actually uh, written by Boyd Cathy, and um, he said he sent this out in his uh, in his email list, and he suggested that I run it on the website, uh, and I thought it was great. And he, we ran a piece about Dabney, Robert Louis Dabney, a, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, in this particular piece, he quotes he has several quotes from from Dabney that he says uh, are just so prescient, um, and. He looks at the, and he says, look, when I started reading Dabney years ago, I didn't realize how, how important Dabney was and the things that he said and the things that, uh, and it was, he was so prescient in, in looking forward to the future and understanding what was going to happen. And he, he wrote in this piece that he actually emailed uh, some Dabney material to Pat Buchanan, who included it in a column. Uh, because when you look at what Dabney was talking about in the late 19th century, and you look at the attacks that were ongoing in American society at that time. Um, you know, uh, when I wrote uh, my politically incorrect guide to real American heroes, I brought up Augusta Jane Evans uh, Wilson, who wrote St. Elmo, among other things. Uh, and one of the things in that particular book, and people are shocked when I wrote this, people said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize people were talking about Marxism or communism that way all the way back in 1866, and they were. I mean, uh, Evans actually... Um, wrote that uh, you know communism was going to be a problem uh, in the future and she's writing this in 1866 not in not in uh, you know 1966 she's writing it a hundred years before we really saw the 
ascension of communism in the United States. Uh, and she pointed out where this could be a problem. And of course, one of the things she was often she would be often attacked for today is that you know she was um, highly critical of all the reform movements of the 19th century, including the women's reform movement. And she called um, women who were interested in that blue stockings. This was the uh, the pejorative used to describe women who were not interested in family and traditional uh, feminine roles. She was highly critical of that. Now Dabney, of course, he quotes that uh, that uh, Dr. Kathy provides here are from uh, his uh, book entitled Secular Discussions, but the chapter is Women's Rights Women. And he's very critical of uh, this movement uh, to disrupt traditional roles in society. Um, and that w- one of the things it would do was, atten- was eventually disrupt northern conservatism, not uh, not southern conservatism, because southern, southerners had been, uh, you know, their, their conservatism was a little different, but um, northern conservatism is going to be disrupted. And, of course, at that point, um, you know, what, what are we going to do? Um, but uh, Russell Kirk wrote, and one of the things that's attracted me to the New South, and I'll get into this, you know, Russell Kirk wrote uh, in his conservative mind that there really wasn't anything conservative in the uh, late 19th century. You can't find it. Uh, it's very hard to find. In fact, he calls the period conservatism frustrated. But there were conservatives out there in the New South period. Uh, they were Southerners. And he, uh, Kirk's point was, well, these people were too focused on themselves and trying to reform their own society than to be uh, more interested in American society. But I find that not to be true. The problem was that they were ignored because they were Southern. Not that they were... Um, not that they weren't uh, concerned about the wave of progressivism that was just transforming American society, but no one was listening to them because they were Southern. Southerners have been sounding the fire bell in the night for, for generations. And they are usually given some nasty term, labeled some nasty term, and then uh, discounted just because they're Southern. And Dabney is that way too. But it was refreshing to see that uh, you know Pat Buchanan actually said, "Hey, this guy's pretty smart." And of course, he's talking about terms like equality with a capital E. This is where uh, Mel Bradford was uh, highly critical of equality. You know, there's there's two different types of equality. There's equality, and then there's equality with a capital E. And that equality of condition is not what the founding generation meant by equality. Uh, humans across the board, and I, I you know, recognize that people aren't equal. Uh, they recognize that some people are naturally uh, more intelligent than others. Some people are naturally more gifted in uh, athletics than others. Uh, some people are naturally uh, better looking than others. Some people have you know, many talents. Some people have one talent. These are all things that are given to us by our Creator. And we are, we are given these talents by God, and so you have to maximize those talents. Some people have more talents than others, and that's just the nature of, uh, of nature, right? So, I mean, that, that's what it is. Uh, this is where you have to believe in a higher power, and you have to maximize the talents you have and understand that some people may have more talents than you. And that's okay if you are doing everything you can do to maximize your own talents. But equality with a capital E would say everyone is equal across the board. It's a leveling infl- I mean, it's, it's a steamroller, in other words, more than anything else. And that steamroller is going to mash out, is going to suppress those with talent who can rise above that. This is where the founding generation talked about a natural aristocracy, how people would naturally, with natural talents would rise to the top. 
and so this is that is the enemy of equality with a capital E. Uh, and again, people that are not naturally talented, if they don't have what it takes to to do some things that they may want, are naturally inclined to want to go out and take from others. And you can't have a society where the a society will not work that way, because you'll never have a, a a prosperous society. You'll never have a society that has any type of culture or or a soul, a complete soul. You won't have it if you're just trying to mash everyone into the same. I mean, it really is conformity. In its worst form, it's conformity. And so when people, if you bring these things up now, well, I believe that uh, some people are more, oh, oh, well, you're just, I mean, you, you, you are a bad person then. And it's just, but on the other hand, uh, if I said I wanted to go out and play professional baseball tomorrow, people would laugh at me because I can't throw a baseball 95 miles an hour. I can't hit 400-foot home runs. I can't do those things. And so people understand that, well, I don't have that talent. So they recognize that some people are, and they're paying big bucks to see this, and some people are more naturally talented. But when it works in things like intellectual pursuits or making money or whatever, you know, some business acumen or uh, arts, you're for a good writer or a good painter, we don't, we don't want to praise these things anymore. We want to sweep them under because that makes us feel inferior. And that's, that's more of a problem with uh, emotivism than anything else. It's an emotional response more than a logical response to logically you would want to promote people that are good that are intelligent that know how to do certain things that's logical because that makes your society better but the emotive response is no 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 those people make me feel bad because they make me feel inferior so i want to take them down a notch that's the emotive response and of course the people that have those talents should understand manners and be uh, magnanimous and say, you know, and, and have compassion to, to those who don't have those and understand their position and use that gracefully. That's manners. And again, this gets back to Southern identity and what Southerners would often do. So uh, I like that uh, we can bring up Dabney again. I think he's so important. Uh, same thing with Thornwell, uh, you know, these great Southern theologians. But there are so many Southern conservatives out there in the late 19th century that uh, should be listened to, and I'll get to that uh, in my particular piece for briefly, because I, I don't want to. You'll get to hear the lecture at one point, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But uh, before I do that, we had the piece on uh, Thursday by Joe Wolverton, who actually writes for the New American quite a bit, and he he's a friend of the institute, and he wrote this little piece on Madisonian nullification. There's often a critique of James Madison uh, because, you know, Madison being one of the authors of the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions, uh, supposedly uh, in 1834 he backtracked on uh, supporting nullification. But you have to understand the difference between uh, what Madison was, was suggesting, nullifica- what South Carolina was suggesting was nullification, and what Madison believed was nullification in 1798. First and foremost, uh, he... Madison said that, um, look, South Carolina is wrong because one state cannot nullify a law for the entire union. And what Madison and Jefferson were saying in 1798 is that that law is no longer enforceable in our state, in Virginia and Kentucky, but it doesn't mean you can't enforce it in New York or Massachusetts or South Carolina. You just are not going to have it enforced here. We're not nullifying for the entire union. We're nullifying for and within our borders, the states then are a hedge against um, against unconstitutional acts that we deem unconstitutional in our state. 
But we don't think, and this is where he was critical of South Carolina, you can't say that one state can nullify a law for the entire union. That just is not possible. That doesn't work. So I think it's important to get that distinction. I think Mr. Wolverton does a nice job here in doing that. Uh, because it's always, oh, yeah, well, James Madison didn't really believe in it because he said he was against nullification in 1834. No, he was against the way South Carolina was applying it. And so we can talk about whether, you know, which one of those was more accurate, uh, you know, whether South Carolina's position on nullification was a good position or not, or whether or the, whether we should look at, you know, Madison and, and Jefferson's view of nullification. And I think their view works better than South Carolina's view. But um, it is an interesting uh, argument in political philosophy and in, in, uh you know, political science to discuss these type of things. Uh, South Carolina was definitely doing something original in 1832, and that's not often uh, recognized. And then finally, we have my piece. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. I, I want to keep this podcast you know, within that 30-minute range usually. So finally, we have the piece that I published uh, or wrote and, and uh, gave the address. One of my talks, I'll, do the, I'll put the other talk up uh, later, um, uh, in a couple of weeks on uh, Southern historians. But this particular talk is entitled New South Voices of the Southern Tradition. And what I wanted to point it out, particularly for those listening to this podcast who are scholars, my main point in this entire piece, and it's a long piece, was that don't ignore the New South. There is so much to the New South that uh, needs to be discussed just as much as we do the old. And of course, it is great to bring out the great thinkers of the Old South, because it was, as, as even H.L. Mencken pointed out, the, the, the highlight of American civilization. But we need to remember that there are the parts, the Southern history is not four years, or Southern history is not just the 80 years leading to the war. Uh, Southern history went beyond that. And, and so I bring up three areas that I think um, we need to understand. Of course, uh, history is one of those in another talk. So uh, but number one, we need, to, we need to look at southern statesmen in the postbellum period, particularly because of that Kirkian idea that this is, there, was no, there was nobody in the South worthy of study because they were too focused on themselves. This just isn't true. And I bring up uh, you know, John Warwick Daniel, uh, who was the lame lion of Lynchburg, and I've written, on him, I've written about him on the website already, but um, there are others. In fact, these were called the brigadier, the brigadier uh, uh, congressmen. Uh, the the uh, men, there were seven uh, 700 of them or so, uh, these men that had uh, served in the Confederacy and then elected, elected to various uh, positions. Uh, the rebel brigadiers is what they were often called. And uh, we need to focus on these people because they were important. And I think we misunderstand them oftentimes and who they were and what they were pushing. And, and John Warwick Daniel, um, a lot of people don't realize this, but when the Washington Monument was dedicated, uh, he gave one of the speeches there, and he pointed out that George Washington was a Southerner. George Washington was a Virginian first and foremost, and so uh, we need to we need to study these people. A. O. Bacon, and uh, all, even going into the uh, 19-teens and 20s, people like Oscar Underwood and Henry Stegall and Her- Henry Clayton and Carter Glass and Arsene Pujo, and uh, you know even um, you know, into the into the 20, 20th century, uh, late twentieth century, Richard Russell and Sam Irvin, Harry Byrd and John Stennis, even Huey Long, uh, all these people need more of our attention because the the problem with with the with this period, you have the New South creed, which is often as a pejorative uh, as the uh, myth of the lost cause. In fact, the problem is, and as I get into historians in the other piece, 
by saying this is the New South Creed, you're saying that Southerners lied about that, and so then therefore they're lying about the past too. In essence, essence, Southerners lie. Southerners lie. So we need to look at these uh, Southern politicians and statesmen in the late 19th and 20th century. We need to focus also on uh, Southern economic life. I mean, this is the New South. We often focus on that. But how did the South make this new economy distinctively Southern? And so I would, if there's anyone out there who listens to this who's interested in labor or industrialization, look at the Southern factories of the uh, uh, that, that popped up in this, this idea of paternalism and how that was applied to, uh, which is a, a, a Southern concept of labor, how that was applied to Southern factory life. Southerners engage in industrialization their own way. Even to this day, and then, of course, Southern literature, which is something the Abbeville Institute does a lot of. And so I am no expert on Southern literature. But I focused on uh, this uh, series, the Library of Southern Literature, which came out in the early 20th century. And there was a companion to that, the South and the Building of the Nation series, which is a historical series, which, again, I talk about in my next piece, which I will publish. Um, but we need to understand, again, how the South fit within this new world and they were making they were these were distinctively southern things uh, and so i say in the conclusion this is why this period of southern history is critical to our current situation people like foster who wrote a book entitled ghosts of the confederacy is very critical of the new south and, and the lost cause quote control the narrative it has not always been so. Perhaps these academics bought the history of the period, and these are the uh, academics in the postbellum South, because it was largely true. No current establishment academic has dared make that claim. It would be career suicide, but if the academy was seriously dedicated to real scholarship, it would embrace Genovese's call to understand Southerners and Southern society without haphazardly condemning it, and Richard Weaver's insistence that the South has much to teach modern America. But I say, as Clyde Wilson has noted, this would place the burden of the myth of the war on the North, not the South, and would take the fire out of the current crusade against Southern symbols. To the political and academic left, that can never be allowed to happen. Uh, and so, you know, when we look at these things, all of these, all of these interesting parts of the postbellum South, it would change our perspective on America. You know, the Occupy Wall Street people, for example, are misguided in where they're getting their intellectual firepower from. But John Taylor of Caroline was Occupy Wall Street in the early 19th century, just not in the form that he wasn't a Marxist. But he was sounding the alarm bell of the fusion of government and organized finance, and that's where we get the big banks. So you know these things are distinctively Southern. If we knew that, people would actually say, I want to love the South, not I want to tear down the South. But we've done a very poor job. Now, in the early 20th century, Southerners were trying to put this forward. We've done a very poor job articulating our position. What we need is positivity and understanding and not condemning. I read somewhere that uh, there are actually some you know, um, Marxists now who are reading uh, Fitzhugh, uh, you know, his, his uh, sociology for the South, because of its interest in, in of course, Fitzhugh was called uh, the uh, Marx of the South because of his interest in 
his 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 structure of society and how he was interested in more of a class structure than anything else. Um, and so um, I think that uh, there are people who are recognizable. Maybe the South does have something to say, and maybe we should pay attention to it, and maybe the South is the real part of America, but we need to do a better job of bringing that out. And so I encourage academics to focus not just on the war um, and, the, and lead up to the war and these great thinkers before the war, but also some of these thinkers after the war, because we even most of us have a very negative view of the New South, of course, Dabney had a very negative view of the New South. He was living in it. But uh, I think they're missing a, a bigger and more beautiful part of Southern history if, if, they, if they're doing that. And so we need to bring those things out. Can you divorce? Because the only thing we're going to get into most of the time if you read New South or, or 20th century Southern history, particularly these people, is all race. But can you, can you find something valuable out of these people besides their attitudes on race or you know, segregation? And I think you can. I think you can. You can understand what these people are and find something to uh, take from that. As Weaver has said, and I've said it on this podcast before, we wouldn't want to live in the, new, in the Old South, but the Old South can teach us how to live. There's a lot of it that can be used to make us better people. And that's Southern identity. And that's what we need to do. And that's where uh, I think our, our um, summer school is very good and why these pieces that we ran this week are honing in on that fact. So embrace the fact you're deplorable. Find something that's true and valuable in the Southern tradition and, and uh, enjoy that Southern identity and live it and find community in yourself and with those around you of like, like-minded people and do that and you'll live a happier and more productive life. Until next time, good day. Good day.